Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor Lacane. Today we'll be discussing the war in Ukraine with three people who just returned from there. When the Russians invaded in February, many people expected the Russians to win in a few days. But the Ukrainians have been fighting bravely and have even beaten back the Russians from the capital city of Kiev. Despite their military victories, the Ukrainians are experiencing terrible destruction at the hands of ruthless Russians. Russian aggression has brought together the United States and Europe and much of the world in support of the Ukrainian people. The US is leading allies in imposing severe sanctions on the Russians and sending Ukrainians billions in military and humanitarian aid. The question for today is, what's happening now on the ground in Ukraine? Our guests just returned from a visit there and will give us a firsthand report. We have three guests today. I'm gonna to introduce each of them, starting with Barbara Ween, is a peace practitioner and scholar with extensive knowledge of gender violence, peace building, nonviolent social movements, and the political economy of war. Barbara teaches at American University in Washington, DC. She's edited and written 27 books and articles, led eight nonprofit organizations, and taught at six universities. Her entire life, most of which I've known her for as a friend and colleague, has been dedicated to ending human rights abuses, violence, war, and ecological destruction. She's protected civilians from the death squads and conflict zones, and helped establish 280 programs in the study of peace and conflict resolution on campuses around the world. Welcome, Barbara. Our second guest is Michelle Dunn, Executive Director of Franciscan Action Network, the peace and justice advocacy organization of Franciscans in the United States. A professed secular Franciscan, Michelle previously had a 30-year career in foreign policy and Middle Eastern affairs, including nearly 20 years at the U.S. Department of State. Michelle holds a PhD in Arabic language from Georgetown University. Welcome, Michelle. Our third guest is Eli McCarthy, who teaches at Georgetown University and Justice and Peace Studies. Since 2012, Eli has worked on federal policy with faith-based advocacy coalitions on peace building, foreign policy, immigration, and the environment. His recent book is titled, A Just Peace, Ethnic Primer, Building Sustainable Peace and Breaking Cycles of Violence. Eli is also the co-founder of the DC Peace Team, which offers training in nonviolent communication, restorative justice, and bystander intervention. Welcome, Eli. So welcome all three of you to All Together Now. And, uh, I just have to let our listeners know I am recovering from COVID and was not planning to do a show today because I'm still not 100%. But uh, Barbara Ween contacted me and I thought the issue was urgent and the perspective really unique and important. So I am going to 
forge ahead to bring this message to you today. And I, uh, I may need to pause briefly to get a sip of water for my throat, which hasn't talked this long in quite some time. So uh, if I do take a break, I'm going to invite our guests to just keep talking with your important messages. And I would also note uh, our friend Eli McCarthy can only join us for the first half hour. So I'm going to front load questions to Eli in the first half hour and then <clears throat> focus more with Barbara and Michelle uh, for the second part of the program. So with that said, I am really eager to hear from you all. Um, and I want to start with you, Eli. Uh, why did you go? Oh, hot news flash from Eli. He's going to be able to join for the entire hour. Oh, are we in luck? Fantastic. Um, all right. So, but if you could begin, Eli, uh, why did you go to Ukraine? Who went on the trip? And who sponsored the trip? Feel free to explain to our guests, please. Well, thank you so much, Eleanor, for taking this time to, to talk with us and to invite this conversation into the radio space. And thank you, Barbara, for, for organizing it. Um, so, you know, the reasons for going to Ukraine um, certainly it is because so many of our fellow sisters and brothers are suffering and struggling and um, hearts were stirred and many of us were trying to figure out, you know, how can we be helpful? Um, how can we try to get this war to end as soon as possible? So there was an invitation by the mayor of Kiev um, around late March, where he said publicly, I make an appeal to the world's spiritual leaders to take a stand and assume the moral function that is incumbent upon them and to proudly assume the responsibility of their religions for peace. So he was inviting religious leaders. You know, he mentioned people like Pope Francis and the leaders of Jewish and Muslim traditions and so forth to come. So, um, some of us, a friend, Rose Berger and from Sojourners, and Marie Dennis from Pax Christi International, we started having these conversations, and then we found out a group in Poland called Europe Patient that was also working on a similar delegation. So we got together and decided to kind of work together on this. Um, so it ended up being about 17 religious leaders from mostly Europe and the U.S., uh, representing Jewish, Muslim, and Christian traditions. Um, some of these folks included Anglican Bishop um, Reverend Bailey, Joe Bailey Wales from the church at, from the UK, um, Imam Paolo Vincini, who is a European um, coordinator of the European Muslim leaders based in Italy, Sister Sheila Kinsey, who is uh, co-secretary of the Justice and Peace Commission in Rome for the Catholic religious orders around the world. And then, you know, a number of other folks uh, from the U.S., like Dr. Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon, who's director of Churches for Middle East Peace, and Professor Jose Casanova, who's a Ukrainian Catholic. He teaches at uh, Georgetown in the Berkeley Center. 
for Religion and Peace, as well as Michelle and Barbara, um, also from the U.S. So how big was your delegation? Uh, we had 17 people. 17 people from across the United States? Uh, and Europe. And Europe. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So um, where did you go? I mean, there's if you're on the eastern side now, you're kind of getting pummeled, but where did you end up going in Ukraine, Eli? Well, um, we took a bus from Warsaw in Poland straight to Kiev. Took about a day to get there. Um, and we, we stayed in the Kiev area. Um, we kind of started at the Bab and Yar Memorial, which is a memorial for Jewish persons who were killed during World War II. And we had our first prayer there in the morning and press conference on Tuesday the 24th. Um, and then we had another prayer service at St. Sophia Cathedral, which was a, a main Orthodox uh, space in downtown Kiev. But we also did um, some visits with religious leaders and political leaders, both the, the mayor's office and the central government of Ukraine, um, religious leaders who were uh, you know, chief rabbis and archbishops of the Greek Catholic Church and uh, Islamic um, leaders as well. And we spent some time um, in Irpin, which is a little bit northwest of Kiev, kind of close. There's a number of houses and buildings that were bombed. It's right next to Buka, where you know, they've had a number of atrocities reported. And we kind of worked with Caritas International that helps distribute food and medical aid. And we spent time with some of the local people, a number of elderly persons and, and families that had lost their homes and were living in kind of a, a, a compound in these really small rooms. And they shared some of their stories mm -hmm. about what they experienced. So those are some of the main activities. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, you know, you're talking about traveling a very long distance to march into the jaws of a country at war and experiencing extreme uh, devastation and death uh, at the hands of the Russians. And um, Michelle, I'm going to turn to you next. Uh, you know, what did you think you were going to accomplish by going there? Um, well, thanks very much for inviting us, Eleanor. Um, look, I have to be honest with you. Um, you know, when I was invited, um, you know, uh, to join the delegation, I did feel a draw to go, but I wasn't exactly sure what we could accomplish, mm -hmm. you know, and that's been one thing we've been talking about during the trip and after the trip. What can people of faith and people of nonviolence do? when, you know, walking kind of into the middle of a hot war here. Although I will say, as I think Eli mentioned, that there was not fighting going on where we were mm -hmm. in, in the capital right now. The fighting, as you know, is now concentrated more in the, the east and south of the country and a little bit in the north as well. Um, I think Russian forces were about 75 miles away from where we were in the capital. Close um, enough for a missile to reach. <laughs> and there were a lot of air raid sirens <laughs> while we were there. They were waking Barbara up every night. She can tell you about that. 
But um, anyway, look, so what, what were we doing? You know, I mean, we were, first of all, we went there to be in solidarity, right? We went there, you know, the, the mayor of Kiev asked for faith leaders to come. And, and so we went, you know, we went there to show um, our solidarity with and love for Ukrainian people, to be with them at a difficult time mm-hmm. and to learn what we could and learn um as as Sister Sheila Kinsey said, you know, during the trip to learn what is ours to do, what mm-hmm. can we do, what kind of contribution can we make as as I said, people of nonviolence, people of faith, to adjust peace for Ukraine. Uh, and I guess I'll I'll just say, uh, Eleanor, that a, a sort of light turned on for me after a few of the conversations we had with both faith leaders and political leaders who were telling us they very much valued our being there, even though you know, we certainly have no weapons to give them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't even have, you know, diplomatic solutions or anything like that to give them. And yet they wanted us to be there and valued our being there. And they said that the reason for that was that this you know, wars take place on the spiritual and ideological level as much as they do on any other level. And that, you know, for the people of Ukraine, um, spiritual strength, unity, um, solidarity from abroad, and also uh, proof, you know, getting, getting a truthful story out about what is going on there in the country is extremely important and extremely important. Those are very important ways in which, or tools in to be used in ending a war like this and establishing a just peace. And I came to see, oh, that's the contribution we can make since those sort of intangibles in a way are every bit as important, maybe in some ways more important than the than the tangibles, then that, that's where we can make a contribution. That's great. And uh, Barbara, you know, we've been friends for decades and you've many times gone into hot conflict zones uh, carrying the banner of peace and nonviolence. Um, what was your experience over there? Do you, what did you hope to achieve in particular in Ukraine? And do you feel like the trip was worthwhile? Barbara. Thank you very much. Yes, I, I went to stiffen the spine of the Ukrainians to help get, bring my best positive energy. Uh, and I feel that with, the war, there is militarism, there are bombs, there's violence and rape. And we brought a different energy. We brought something more powerful than war. We brought nonviolent positivity and we stood shoulder to shoulder with the Ukrainian people. Uh, And they were shocked that we came. They kept expressing surprise that we went. Um, And they kept saying, you're not for yourselves, you're not for yourselves. And uh, what Michelle has expressed and articulated is so important that war happens at the psychological level. And uh, for us to go and try to be a healing force, literally the religious leaders that I traveled with, 
laid hands on people that had been brutalized and bombed out of their homes. And you saw how healing that was for them. Uh, I am not a particularly uh, devout or a highly religious figure, or I was really out of my league with these world-class scholars, bishops and imams, and they were so, so um, renowned. Uh, but they made a difference going into a uh, home for those that had been displaced, mainly elderly, but also families, and literally touching the relative residents in such a healing fashion, such a loving fashion. I came home to find my latest issue of National Geographic magazine all on the scientific basis for the power of touch and all the science on how healing touch can be. Um, so we went for psychological reasons, um, and also, uh, as Michelle had articulated on our trip, uh, that we proved that we could uh, pave the way for others, that other delegations can go. And this was part of Eli's plan with Sojourners and Pax Christi and our European brothers and sisters. He hopes to send, we hope to send waves of delegations in the future. This is not just a one-off where we parachute in and then leave. We're right. hoping to establish a semi-permanent presence there um, as a positive life force. That's fantastic. And Eli, um, you recently published an article I read on the wagingnonviolence.org website, and it was titled Five Ways to Support Courageous Nonviolent Resistance in Ukraine. And I'm very curious to know, I mean, obviously you wrote that before you went there, but um, can you tell us, did you find examples of Ukrainians practicing nonviolent resistance even in the midst of this? And then what are some of the ways our listeners could support such nonviolent um, activities on behalf of the Ukrainians? Yeah, thank you, Eleanor. Um, so the Ukrainians have been doing an amazing amount of courageous nonviolent resistance since the beginning of the war, and there continue to be act, there continues to be activity now. Um, so yeah, in that piece, I, I tried to track uh, a lot of the examples, and you know, some of them were things like uh, physically blocking convoys and tanks, and um, doing protests when shots were going in the air to try to scare them away. Um, more recently, kind of refusing to uh, shift to the ruble in some of the areas that Russia is starting to occupy. Um, some administrators, you know, in those areas are refusing to comply with orders or slow walking different um, processes. So these are all examples of kind of, you know, non-cooperation, which is a really critical practice of strategic nonviolence. Um, there are other stories of Ukrainians fraternizing with Russian soldiers to kind of lower their morale and stimulate defections. Um, we, we had a, a panel of local peace builders and nonviolent activists that we met with uh, while we were at there in Kiev. And one example was a woman named Tanya who works with the League of Mediators, and they've been finding that uh, there's been increasing polarization in Ukrainian families, conflict, discord, sometimes divorce, domestic violence. 
So her and her team have been out there in the community trying to mediate some of these conflicts. And, you know, this is nonviolent action, right? And this is critical mm -hmm. to preventing the anger and the discord from spreading in so many different directions, right? So that is an example of a group that, you know, people can support as well. Uh, we also met with another fellow named Andre, who's based in Kiev, but he's working on uh, addressing disinformation in the Russian uh, civil society and finding out messaging that really works with persons in those spaces. And, you know, he's got researchers that he's working with to do that. And Barbara knows a lot about the Russian space of nonviolent resistance as well. Um, so those are, those are some examples. Um, we've been advocating the U.S. government to try to lean some of its funding towards peace building aid, um, which means to support organizations like that, help them to communicate between each other. You know, there are individuals and small groups in different occupied areas that are trying to non-cooperate, but they could use more resources, ways to communicate, uh, legal resources, material, technology resources, and diplomatic support and cover as they take, you know, risk in some pretty considerable uh, spaces. That's great. And, you know, I think the whole strategy of nonviolence has woven through this thing. Obviously, what gets the news is the bombing of the ships and the cities. And if it bleeds, it leads. But I haven't seen anyone talking about how strong nonviolence is in, in so many ways in this conflict. We've got you're talking about the Ukrainians. There's the the men just standing in front of the Russian tanks. The you know saying stop. Um, incredible nonviolent resistance. And there's the nonviolent tactics by the U.S. and Europe. The biggest response uh, has been around the sanctions, economic sanctions to Russia, and then within Russia itself, people have been demonstrating against the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Some, you know, thousands of people are, are fleeing the country, uh, kind of a brain drain, but also in spite of very harsh rules to prevent people in Russia from speaking out against the war, Russians are speaking out anyway and, and ways they can find, you know, Barbara, are you, what's your sense of where do you see nonviolent resistant being operative in this Ukrainian-Russian conflict? Yes, I'm getting some of it secondhand, of course, but we did hear that in Mariupol there are underground networks, there's uh, civil resistance, parallel institutions in the Donbass region, in Luhansk, um, that they are carrying out actively civil resistance against the Russian occupation in many cities and towns. Um, it takes many different forms, some of which Eli mentioned. Um, I've been tracking about 15 really powerful trends inside Russia uh, that some of it is people are simply, uh, you know, expressing themselves with through through uh, withdrawing their consent. Um, so out of the 10 major conscription centers around the country where males have to do one year of obligatory military service, they say many people are not showing up. They're not showing up for their obligatory service. 
one statistics we heard while we were in Ukraine, and again, I cannot validate or verify this, um, was that the Russians have committed about 137,000 troops um, in Ukraine, a, a third of which have now been killed. Um, so that would be about 45,000 Russian soldiers dead, is my estimate. And you can't hide that for very long from the Russian people. Um, so we are seeing many Ukrainian-Russian um, links where Russian families are reaching out to hotlines in Ukraine, trying to locate their husbands, sons, brothers, um, and Ukrainians are helping them. Uh, and it's really remarkable. Uh, some of the forensic scientists and, and medical people have been answering the hotlines, responding to the Russian families. Um, but we've also seen, of course, you know, the director of the Bolshoi defected and the uh, top ballerina in the Bolshoi defected. Um, we've seen statements uh, from the bishops in Russia against the war. We've seen statements by academics and scientists university students. We estimate about 9,000 people are in detention now in Russia that have been beaten and detained. 30 young women uh, actually recorded their beatings inside the police station on uh, a, a secret cell phones that they had hidden in their clothing. Uh, and uh, we are seeing uh, more and more um, folks uh, reaching out to uh, others across uh, the Ukrainian Russian lines. I, I probably don't have time to go into all of this, mm -hmm. uh, but the anti-war messaging is also very important. So working with civil resistance networks inside Russia that are putting out um, test messages to see what would work. You can't really argue with Russians uh, you know, uh, whether the Ukrainians are Nazis or, you know, this is just like World War II, the message that resonates the most with Russians that we have found so far is the Russian military is coming for you next. They're coming for your son, they're coming for your husband, they're coming for your brother. And that seems to wake people up out of all the propaganda and get really get their attention. Um, people are fearful and the war is not popular. Um, there is uh, uh, disenchantment, there is fear. Of course, people are afraid to speak out, um, but there has been no quick victory. Um, and uh, there are uh, disenfranchised and disenchanted members of the public. Uh, they're just like we saw with the Chechen war, with the Georgian war, with the Crimean annexation, uh, the war is not popular, um, but we can't really measure the extent of that in such you know, Putin has such a vice grip on the population. Uh, so Russian society is very complicated. It's not monolithic. We have generational differences. Uh, the media information space is very difficult um, mm -hmm. to assess. Right. Um, I can give many more examples of nonviolent resistance inside yeah. Russia. And that's where I think we need to concentrate our efforts to uh, really undermine and erode the pillars of power for Putin and his enablers. Uh, the oligarchs and others that are profiting from this war. Right. I want to circle back to that in a minute because I want to know what actions from what you've learned you think we should take. But before we get there, I just want to give Michelle an answer to uh, a chance to answer this issue. What did you see or what did you learn in the Ukraine about examples of nonviolent resistance by the Ukrainians in the midst of a very 
hot, very brutal war. Well, you know, Eleanor, in in situations like this where, you know, there's an attempt at, um, you know, at an occupation or a, a just a, a takeover of Ukraine by Russia, uh, I, I was impressed that just the Ukrainians, some of them remaining in place or going back, you know, a lot of people who have left Ukraine have gone back. So in other words, just being there and their very um, strong efforts to um, carry out normal life are a form of nonviolent resistance, mm-hmm. you know, are a form of saying we're not giving into this. We're not giving into the idea that Russia's taking over. So, um, you know, there, I, I think uh, Barbara and Eli will remember there was a very long line of cars from Poland to get back into Ukraine. And, um, you know, the mayor's office told us that in the capital, Kiev, it's normally inhabited by about four million people. And um, right now there are about two and a half million living in Kiev, but many of those are people who came back after the uh, Ukrainian forces pushed the Russian forces out of the area of the capital. So, and like another example, you know, uh, Eli mentioned this area in a little town called Irpin, right outside of Kiev that saw Russian occupation and a great deal of devastation people made homeless by Russian bombing of their houses and so forth. But like we spoke to uh, one woman, a quite a young woman who, um, you know, was herself made homeless and, but who decided to stay and to organize, you know, more than a hundred people to live in this abandoned summer camp, you know, and, and with the Caritas charity, you know, supporting them and so forth. So, there are people like that making what I think is a very courageous, nonviolent uh, decision to to either remain there or maybe having left during the hot bombing to come back and say, no, we're coming back and we're going to restart normal life. I mean, you can really feel it in the capital that people are working very hard to get services back up and everything like as normal as it can be while they're still at war and the air raid sirens are still going off, you know, several times a day and so forth. Um, and just the other point I wanted to mention was um, that one of the civil society activists we met with mentioned that, you know, Ukrainians are um, accustomed to living in a country where they can just go out into the streets and protest if they're, if they're unhappy those who are living in areas under Russian occupation, so for example, now in the east, um, in Luhansk and, and, uh, and, and the Donetsk region, you know, in here or Mariupol, it, they're having to now learn different methods because the risks to just going out and protesting openly can become exceedingly high, um, like being shot instantly. So there's a real need, I think, for help from the outside in you know, training people. Of course, there are many, many versions of nonviolent resistance, of non-cooperation, and so forth. And there's there's a need for Ukrainians in areas under Russian occupation to to learn or relearn some of those methods. I'm so happy you mentioned that because I've been watching this. You know, this it's such a drama unfolding in front of us with intense consequences for millions of people, but. First, you get the Russian aggression. Then you've got the Ukrainian 
courageous response. I mean, people thought this war would be over in three days, that the Russians would roll in and boom, take over the country. And the Ukrainians were like, no way, we're, we're fighting back. And the incredible resilience and courage of the Ukrainian people, it's like the world is saluting the Ukrainians for what their, their courage in defending their country against this aggression. Um, and add, Eleanor, that we go ahead, Barbara. Never, yeah, we must never forget the Orange Revolution in right. 2004 and the Maidan Revolution in 2014. Um, they've had two huge nonviolent uprisings against Russian puppets and uh, enablers that were installed there, and they pushed back and 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 advanced democracy. Exactly right. And that's what I'm thinking is the Ukrainians already have tremendous experience and success in nonviolent resistance. And I've been, uh, on the one hand, I've been happy that we're sending support uh, to the Ukrainian people to help them defend their country, whether that be military aid or the humanitarian aid. Um, but at the same time, I'm thinking, is there anyone that has in the United States or European governments that looks at the history of this country and the strength of these people and says, these are people who already have kind of a natural instinct and experience with nonviolence. What if we did a little bit of training on nonviolence uh, for a fraction of what we're spending on all the bombs and missiles to, to really train Ukrainians on nonviolence to dramatically up the level of their ability to resist invasion. And then even if there is invasion, like in the East, to just do total non-cooperation so the Russians don't even know what street they're on. Michelle, would you like to speak to this? Yeah, I just wanted to add a, a point, Eleanor. You know, um, I mean, you're quite right that, you know, um, the courage and resilience of Ukrainians has been um, admirable and inspiring. You know, having looked a lot at, at uh, uprisings in, in the Middle East, for example, you know, in countries uh, like, like Yemen and Syria and Egypt, those people were also extremely brave and very creative and so forth. What the Ukrainians have going for them at this point that the people in those countries did not is they still have a government standing that is in solidarity with the people. Right. So it's the Ukrainian government that's still in power in solidarity with at least most of the Ukrainian population against this Russian invasion. And that is, while it's an extremely difficult situation, um, it's a different situation than in other countries where, sadly, like in Syria, I mean, the Syrian government allied with Russian military might against their own people. Right. And, uh, you know, the Yemeni government allied with the Saudis, you know, against their own people. That makes it so much harder for people to, you know, at least the Ukrainians have they, they have this government and they're, you know, and they've put aside. But they'll tell you openly, you know, they, there were many things about this government, even about President Zelensky, that weren't that popular. But they've, they said we put aside those differences for now because we we need to hang together to resist, you know, an aggression from outside. Nothing like a foreign invasion to pull a people together. So, uh, yeah, and Eli, would you like to comment on this? 
Yeah. You know, I, it just kind of makes me um, think about what I, what seems to be a really pivotal question is how do we, how do we build a more sustainable peace? What ways, approaches, uh, visions will help us build a more sustainable, just peace? And, you know, one of the things that uh, a couple researchers have found out, Maria Stefan and Erica Chenoweth, um, they looked at, you know, 300 plus nonviolent violent campaigns from 1900 to 2006. And they were trying to figure out, well, you know, what was more effective and under what conditions? And to their surprise, they were both political scientists, particularly Erica, they, they found that nonviolent resistance movements, campaigns, mm-hmm. was actually two times, twice as effective as violent resistance in terms of just the short-term political objectives. And that included occupations and self-determination and so forth. But what I think is even more important is they found that nonviolent resistance campaigns were at least 10 times more likely to lead to a durable democracy or a more sustainable just Mm -hmm. peace, right? Because it cultivates these habits within the participants of creativity, uh, consensus, coalition building, these kind of democratic practices, right? And habits. So it tends to be more effective at getting us to a more sustainable just peace and more durable democracy, which is something, you know, we're often hearing in the context of this conflict. Right, and I had uh, your colleague and possibly uh, a friend of yours, George Lakey, uh, was on this program not that long ago. And I was talking with George about nonviolence in the Ukrainian situation. But I would imagine, I mean, you were there, you're meeting with people, their homes are being destroyed, their cities are being destroyed. I would imagine there's incredible rage and a drive for revenge at this point would be very human. Um, and you can't uh, fault people for wanting to you know, defend their families and defend their country. Um, what's the uh, receptivity to um, nonviolent training and support among the Ukrainians that you met on your trip this past week? Anybody? I, I just want to say I didn't see revenge in the eyes of the Ukrainians that I met. I saw patriotism, uh, which is very different from nationalism. Patriotism being the adherence to values and certain principles. Nationalism being really the you know need for enemies. Um, I, I saw very principled people, very noble people trying to defend their homeland, but I didn't see them spitting poison and, and hateful rhetoric. Um, so, I, I, you know, there may be those who wish to exact revenge, but mostly they were bringing Russian soldiers to the bar of justice for trials, um, unlike what we're seeing in Russia, because Lord knows what's happening there inside those detention camps. Um, But yes, there is a vibrant civil society in Ukraine, and Eli organized a panel with them. 
Uh, it wasn't just the Association of Mediators um, and Andrei Kamenchikov uh, and others, but there were um, conscientious objectors. There were uh, women's movements represented on the panel um, who are trying to find alternatives to violence and war. Um, and there was uh, a, a Monsignor or a, a member, a man of the cloth, a, a priest, um, Michelle and Eli, you have to help me out on the um, uh, religious representative that was on the panel that day from the UK. Yeah, he was with the Orthodox Church. Yes. Um, so they do have a vibrant civil society. They do have a tradition of nonviolence. They do have underground networks. Um, and there are Ukrainians that are scaling up nonviolence training, or at least trying to find the funding to do that. And I think that's one role that we can play is to get mm -hmm. them the financial support they need. Um, I will also give a shout out to my brothers and sisters from the Nonviolent Peace Force who are closer to the fighting. I don't know if you know anything about the Nonviolent Peace Force, but they send in large teams of unarmed bodyguards for human rights to walk side by side with people so they don't get killed. And they're there if Russian soldiers show up. Uh, I don't know all the areas they've been deployed uh, in Ukraine currently because uh, it, it's a very fluid situation, but they were in Darfur, they've been in Rwanda, they've been in Palestine, protecting the lives of Palestinians. They've been all over the world and it's in very large numbers um, and they uh, ensure that civilians are not killed. And the only protection they really have is their international passports. Um, and that serves to quell violence and act as a deterrent. Um, so there are other nonviolent actors on the ground um, in addition to our delegation. That's great. And so I'd like to focus now on kind of what we can do about what you've learned. I mean, uh, we've talked about the importance of being able to put at least some funds into training for nonviolent resistance for the Ukrainians. Um, Michelle, I'm wondering, what else do you think the U.S. government should be doing now in light of your trip? Well, uh, Eleanor, I, you know, I'm not sure I came away from the trip with, with U.S. policy recommendations <laughs> as much as recommendations for people outside the government. Okay. Um, what what like can we as people do? Right. You know, yeah. I, I think that, um, I think that, you know, uh, Barbara already mentioned that um, the steering committee for this trip, of which Eli is a member, is interested in um, arranging more delegations and maybe even some kind of a sustained presence. But I certainly think having more people who are either faith leaders or nonviolence leaders like Barbara, going and um, learning about the situation, uh, taking an interest in it and uh, showing solidarity and coming back out and, um, you know, trying to, trying to do our part to, to establish a truthful narrative internationally about what's going on. As I'm sure you're very aware, Eleanor, um, Russian media are putting out a lot of false narratives right. and, and, and frankly, you know, and they don't even need to convince people of the of the rightness of the Russian position. They just need to sow enough confusion 
Right. So that people say, well, I don't really know what's going on. And I'm just, you know, I'm just not taking an interest. Uh, and we even saw that, you know, Eli and I were chatting with some people in an airport on the way back and, and they had heard a lot of the Russian narrative. And that's exactly what they were saying. Well, I, you know, can't, can't take an interest because it's just too confusing for me. That's mm-hmm. a success, you know, of, right. of uh, you know, a, a propaganda coming out of out of Russia and its allies. So I think, you know, to be for people to be speaking truth about um, what what we saw, or hopefully with others going what they saw and heard what they understand to be the truth of, of what is going on there, the, the great brutality, um, you know, of, of the Russian invasion, uh, the enormous suffering of civilians and the enormous courage and resilience, you know, of the Ukrainians. I think it's it's important to talk about that, mm-hmm. and it's important to um, do what we can to cultivate the solidarity and the unity. You know, a couple of minutes ago, Eleanor, you were asking about whether Ukrainians want revenge, and I, like Barbara and Eli, didn't really hear that from from them. But what I did hear is a lot of concern, a lot of concern about maintaining unity and solidarity inside mm-hmm. Ukraine. Um, something very important happened right after we left Ukraine, which was a decision by the um, part of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that was still under the authority of Patriarch Kirill in Moscow. Most of them now have broken with, with him. And that, and that means that there's greater religious solidarity of the religious community. You know, mm-hmm. Ukraine is religiously diverse. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of different varieties of Orthodox, a couple of different varieties of Catholic, Protestants, plus Jews, plus Muslims. And, you know, so I think um, for them to, you know, have some unity of purpose and solidarity religiously and spiritually is important. That's mostly the work of Ukrainians. But I think that, you know, uh, outside faith leaders can can help to just kind of be with that and contribute to that and amplify, you know, that message outside about this solidarity, uh, you know, and to, um, you know, and, and to and, and to tell the truth and to look for, you know, push for the kind of assistance we've talked about, nonviolence assistance, of course, humanitarian assistance. Um, safe humanitarian exit for those who need to leave and so forth. I think, you know, these are things that we can all be doing. Right. And you're totally right about the propaganda by the Russians trying to confuse people. And one person who is not at all confused by Russian propaganda is President Joe Biden. And he is addressing this, I think, with very strong moral clarity and total unity with the Ukrainian people and uniting as much of the world as he can to stand with the Ukrainians against this aggressive invasion that they're having in their homeland there. So Eli, I wanted to um, ask you, and then Barbara, I'll come to you, but Eli, if you were advising President Biden right now, what would you advise him to do about Ukraine? If you know, if you don't, you can punt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously a really difficult situation. Um, you know, I think number one is we heard from the people that they're not getting enough humanitarian aid. 
There's so it's here. not it's not reaching the people in the Ukraine because we're spending billions of dollars over there from U.S. and Europe. Yeah, but, you know, there's a certain focus to most of that money and the, the humanitarian aid is not is not adequate. Um, and there that continues to grow, um, mm. particularly as the war carries on. Um, secondly, would be the peace building aid. So, you know, the League of Mediators, Andre's group, there's going to be groups that are doing non-cooperation in the occupied territories. So how can President Biden support them? Mm-hmm. Whether it's speaking about the importance of their non-cooperation, um, providing uh, material and technical resources so they can communicate and, and maintain mm-hmm. their non-cooperation. And obviously, yeah. as, as a president, he can amplify those stories, right? He can tell those stories more, both within Ukraine and, and within Russia. Um, I think those are some pivotal things. And, you know, figuring out a way to um, do diplomacy in a way that gets the needs of the different stakeholders met. And sometimes that's a little different than thinking about it in terms of like national interest. Um, but I think that's kind of where the creative work comes in the diplomatic space is like, what are the underlying needs? And then how do you do a diplomatic process that gets us closer to that? Um, Cause we don't right. want to, we don't want to drop that. We don't want to just leave it off. And um, if we keep trying to get an advantage so that we can get certain outcomes, um, that might actually extend the conflict longer. Right. Uh, Barbara, what, what, what can we do here? What's the action, whether United States government or we the people, what action can we take in support of the Ukrainians right now? Yeah. Uh, So we had a six point um, platform that we shared at all of our press conferences. Uh, Number one, of course, was the solidarity and the prayerful presence and pastoral accompaniment. But we were vehemently calling for an end of the bombings of the cities, that grain must flow, that humanitarian aid and quarters must be increased, and that we should be allowed to go to Moscow to pray as well. And that might cause more, um, you know, uh, dissent or more um, contending uh, views among the Russian people themselves. Uh, I think we need to step up uh, all of the assistance that we can on the farms of Ukraine. Um, We have many, many young people that might wish to deploy and help on the farms. Uh, For instance, the Peace Corps. Uh, the Peace Corps, we had, uh, you know, 7,000 to 8,000 young people all over the world, not just young people, there are older people in the Peace Corps as well. When the time is ripe, we're going to need to send many, many Peace Corps volunteers to Ukraine. And we have had a presence there in the past. Um, many of my students um, served in the Peace Corps in Ukraine and were there during the Maidan Revolution, actually. and was very, very powerful. AU is the number one, American University is the number one institution for Peace Corps volunteers. We have the highest number of return Peace Corps volunteers coming to our institutions to earn a master's and the most number of undergrads uh, uh, deploying with the Peace Corps. Um, So the farmers are going to need a lot of help. The other idea that I had, and I know it seems like a wild idea, but if thousands of small boats, thousands of small 
ships and yachts and boats could go to Odessa and try to accompany the grain ships out mm -hmm. of the harbors there because the World Food Program says that 100 million people are now at risk in Egypt, all over mm -hmm. Africa and other areas of the world because of this war. A uh, hundred million people and the Africans had nothing to do with this war. So I'm thinking if we don't want to send warships, if we don't want to send NATO warships to accompany the grain out of Odessa and the other ports, maybe it could be a massive civil society effort on the part of boaters around the world. We have a history of this, actually, on um, boats, sailboats and others went into North Vietnam with uh, humanitarian aid to try and um, break uh, the stalemate over the Vietnam War. We've seen ships landing on the beaches in Gaza trying to break the blockade of Gaza. Um, we've had um, humanitarian convoys like this in the past. I know it seems like a harebrained or wild idea, but sometimes when you interject a new chemistry, a new dynamic into a conflict, you can break the mold. Um, so it's just one idea. I'm bringing right. with you. Yeah. Here. Well, you know, that was Winston Churchill's idea when they needed to evacuate the soldiers in World War II out of Dunkirk. You got anybody who's got a little ship, fishing trawl or whatever, go to Dunkirk and go bring back a soldier or two, however many you can fit in your boat. And it worked. They saved thousands and thousands of lives doing that. So I think there's some real historic precedent. This is what the Danish did during the uh, Nazi occupation of Denmark. Under the cover of night, they ferreted over 5,000 Jews to Sweden on small fishing boats. They saved their Jewish population from the Nazis. So mm. it has been done. It can be done. And, um, you know, uh, there are many, many more examples we could cite like this. Right. Well, and Michelle, what action do you think we can be taking? Well, uh, Eleanor, you know, I'm thinking about a couple of things. I mean, one of the one of the things that I heard Ukrainians concerned about was the issue of reconciliation and like, how can they ever reconcile with Russia after, you know, this unprovoked aggression, this great brutality, atrocities. Mm -hmm. um, the Ukrainians are terribly shocked, you know, by the atrocities that, that they are suffering. I mean, the, the mass killings, mass graves, the sexual assaults and all of this. But it is something I think for diplomats to bear in mind. I mean, Russia should not benefit in any way from this aggression. There should be accountability for war crimes and atrocities. And at the same time, these two peoples have to live next to each other <laughs> forever, mm -hmm. you know? And so, you know, to be, to be thinking about that all the time, how can there be justice? How can there be accountability? And also leave room for reconciliation between peoples at the end of the day. Uh, that's something important, I think, to bear in mind. The other thing that we haven't talked about too much, it was mentioned briefly, is the whole uh, oil and gas picture here. And I hope that, I mean, certainly European leaders are taking the lesson that they need to accelerate their move away from fossil fuels as a matter of national security, that they mm -hmm. can no longer, you know, they, they need to, they need to be using renewable energy that they pretty much generate themselves rather than being dependent 
on Russia or or other, you know, right now they're they're turning partly to other authoritarian powers for that oil and gas. Um, you know, I hope that Americans will see that too. Uh, that that you know the high prices they're suffering and everything now are partly due, you know, to staying dependent on fossil fuels for far too long. And even though the United States is a, is an exporter, it's part of a global market, right? In which uh, in which sadly authoritarians, whether whether we're talking about Russia or the Middle East or whatever, are some of the major exporters of these fuels. And that's you know that's a lesson we should be taking away from this conflict. Absolutely. And uh, by the way, it was President Ronald Reagan warned Europe not to turn to Russia for its gas and fossil fuels. If they had listened to him, they wouldn't be in this predicament right now, like beholden to Russia for their fueling supplies. Um, so we just, uh, we're running out of time here. We just have a very short amount. So I'm going to invite each of you to make one kind of closing comment, you know, under one minute, but just, it could be either an experience you had over there or a message you'd like to give to uh, the American people through the world, through this show, um, like 45 seconds each, a closing comment. And Eli, I'm going to start with you. Right. Well, thank you, Eleanor. Um, you know, certainly, primarily, our, our prayers continue for the people of Ukraine and the people in Russia that this war can end as soon as possible. And we just want to invite particularly religious leaders to pray and consider uh, being part of a delegation um, as we cultivate perhaps a wave of delegations. Kiev, Odessa could be another location where the port is being blocked to Moscow um, and so forth. And for our leaders, religious and political leaders, an invitation to really focus on how do we break the cycles of violence and how do we build a more sustainable just peace? Great question. Uh, Michelle, final comment? Yeah, I, I agree with what Eli said, and I, I would say that um, in conflicts like these, and Ukraine is not the only one, um, you know, going on in the world, but it, it's it's not okay just to shrug our shoulders and look away, you know, and to say it's too complicated for me, I can't, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't care. I think that you know the, these conflicts. Um, there's a great deal of human suffering. It has a, it ends up having profound ripple effects economically, politically, and so forth throughout the world. So I encourage people to to take an interest and to take an interest in a just peace, right? Not to take an interest right. in the way of taking a side and demonizing the other side and so forth, but simply to to try to understand the truth of what's going on and to try to advocate for what our governments can do, uh, what organizations to do, what we as individuals can do to make a contribution to a just peace. Great, and very briefly, Barbara, 30 seconds. I hope Putin and his enablers will be taken to the bar of justice at the International Criminal Court at The Hague, and we will not witness impunity in this conflict. Uh, and I, I think that uh, all despots around the world need to be held to account, as Michelle said. 
Um, also, my heart goes out to the Jewish community of Ukraine, which has been decimated, 84% of whom have left the country and only the poor and the elderly are left. So the Jewish community in Ukraine really needs our help. Thank you so much. Great. That's, that's all the time we have. Barbara Ween, Michelle Dunn, and Eli McCarthy, thank you for being on All Together Now, and thank you for your work to building a lasting peace and justice in Ukraine and around the world. Thank you.